Saint Charles Borromeo once said, do not give yourself to others so completely that you have nothing left for yourself. Welcome to the 37th episode of Saint Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because we have to remember that we have to take care of ourselves, take care of our mental and emotional health, especially when helping others. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, let's take a moment to talk about weed. These days, it's becoming taboo to claim that cannabis is bad, but I don't mind being the bad guy, so let's go. So many people coming in for mental health help say that they use cannabis for so many different reasons, helping them cope with anxiety, helping them get to sleep, etc. And I should start by saying I'm not here to say cannabis can't help with anything, but I am here to say if it was as effective as many of us seem to think it is with mental health in the long term, people would just be smoking and not coming in for treatment, right? Here's my two big problems. One, people smoke for anxiety quite a bit, and yet they still feel anxious day in and day out. The reason is similar to the reason alcohol helps us temporarily when we're depressed or anxious. It works when we use it, but over the long term, it impacts our mental health in a negative way. Sure, when you're smoking weed, you will most likely see a reduction in your anxiety, but the reality is that the rebound anxiety typically comes on stronger. I end up meeting with people who say they started smoking to help them get to sleep or to cope with their stress only to end up getting to the point where they wake up at 1 a.m. every night and have to smoke to fall back asleep again. The other issue I have with weed is far more dangerous and doesn't get talked about enough. And I'm certain people listening are going to say I'm lying and I don't know what I'm talking about because people say this to me face to face when I bring it up. But if you're willing to look into research, you'll see it for yourself. I'll let Harvard spell it out. Evidence is mounting that regular marijuana use increases the chance that a teenager will develop psychosis, a pattern of unusual thoughts or perceptions, such as believing the television is transmitting secret messages. It also increases the risk of developing schizophrenia, a disabling brain disorder that not only causes psychosis, but also problems concentrating and loss of emotional expression. In one recent study that followed nearly 2,000 teenagers as they became young adults, young people who smoked marijuana at least five times were twice as likely to have developed psychosis over the next 10 years as those who didn't smoke pot. Another paper concluded that early marijuana use could actually hasten the onset of psychosis by three years. Those most at risk are youths who already have a mother, father, or sibling with schizophrenia or some other psychotic disorder. Young people with a parent or sibling affected by psychosis have a roughly 1 in 10 chance of developing the condition themselves, even if they never smoke pot. Regular marijuana use, however, doubles their risk to a 1 in 5 chance of becoming psychotic. In comparison, youths in families unaffected by psychosis have a 7 in 1,000 chance of developing it. If they smoke pot regularly, the risk doubles to 14 in 1,000. For years now, experts have been sounding the alarm about a possible link between marijuana use and psychosis. One of the best-known studies followed nearly 50,000 young Swedish soldiers for 15 years. Those who had smoked marijuana at least once were more than twice as likely to develop schizophrenia as those who had never smoked pot. The heaviest users who said they used marijuana more than 50 times were six times as likely to develop schizophrenia as the non-smokers. So, you know, you can go ahead and fight me in the mentions, but I'll stand with the research that cannabis use is generally a bad idea. 
On to the next topic. I don't want to go over the top here, but I think this deserves some time. So often, especially on social media, we see people using phrases like, I'm totally having a panic attack, or I'm crazy, or I'm a little OCD about these things, or even I'm always happy or sad. Maybe I'm bipolar. And while I realize people are using these as hyperbole or that they've just become a cultural thing that we say, I just want to point out that we should all make an effort to use more exact or precise language. The problem with describing ourselves uh, or our lives like this is twofold. One, it makes people who actually experience panic attacks or who are actually diagnosed with OCD and other disorders feel bad because their symptoms and diagnoses are being bandied about like pejoratives. Next, I think this is even more important to consider. Using these terms when we're not actually experiencing them makes others and us feel like maybe we have experienced them. Like when we say, I'm just so OCD about this, and then we meet someone who shares that they actually struggle with OCD, we can start to feel like, oh, OCD is no big deal. I'm a little OCD and I'm fine. I'm still functioning. And we stop realizing how intense and difficult some of these mental health experiences can be for others. We can start to think, why doesn't this person just get over it? Because we've been banned it about as a term that's like no big deal. So, you know, put some effort into avoiding this if possible. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today I'm here to introduce you to Blessed Charles de Foucault. Born in 1858 in France, Charles was orphaned at the age of six and raised by his maternal grandfather. He joined the military where he was known for his childish sense of humor and life of debauchery thanks to an inheritance he received after that same grandfather's death. While in the military, however, he witnessed the prayer life of Muslims and was spurred on to rekindle his own faith. In 1890, he joined the Trappists, and this was the jumping off point for pushing deeper and deeper into his spirituality. He initially moved to Nazareth and set up a little shack outside of convent so he could live in poverty and help the sisters there, but eventually he settled in Algeria and became a hermit. His goal was to form a new congregation, but nobody ever joined him. And on December 1st, 1916, he was assassinated in his hermitage by tribal raiders. They wanted to kidnap Charles, but a 15-year-old involved in the crime got startled and shot Charles through the head. It would seem as though he failed at his goal. However, shortly after his death, new religious congregations like Jesus Caritas and the little brothers and sisters of Jesus and spiritual families inspired by Charles' life and writings started springing up, 19 in all, just like he had hoped all those years earlier. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer, and today we're going with Blessed Charles' Prayer of Abandonment. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I am ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Grace kicks us off. I'm a college student graduating in May, and my college is now online for the rest of the semester. I've utilized my school's therapy and psychiatry since freshman year, but I haven't been in therapy for about a year now. However, my mental health has been degrading. At this point, I can't really begin therapy until I start my job in July and get my own insurance. What would you recommend I do till then? Let's all stop what we're doing and pray for grace, for peace and calm to come into her heart this very moment, and for everyone who wishes they could get help, but for whom help seems currently out of reach. 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. I'm so glad you found help in therapy and psychiatry previously, and I think a lot of those listening know the struggle of feeling like we need help, but feeling unable to get help. And there's actually a lot we can do during this in-between time. If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you've heard me recommend the Anxiety and Worry Workbook by David Clark and Aaron Beck, and it's absolutely great. It's a resource that's great for all of us suffering from anxiety. If you or anyone listening is suffering from the desire to self-harm, especially during this difficult time, I'd recommend Cutting Down, a CBT workbook for treating young people who self-harm. If you or anyone listening is coping with the after-effects of traumatic events, the PTSD workbook simple effective techniques for overcoming traumatic stress symptoms is a great idea here's the thing everything we learn in school when we're getting ready to become therapists every coping skill self-help idea worksheet we hand you in therapy it's all publicly available and many of them even samples of the books i've mentioned above are free online so it's totally worth checking out I realize, and I've said this before, that the relationship is one of the biggest healing factors in therapy. So of course, missing out on that can make all of this seem somewhat less effective. However, the skills you can learn in these workbooks and the healing you can find by engaging in the work they contain can be powerful, transformational, and cost-effective. We're praying for you, Grace. Sister Anonymous stopped by with a question. I switched to telemedicine with my therapist last week, and it's definitely different. I'm wondering if there's any research or if you can speak from your own perspective about the difference in effectiveness or general differences between in-person and virtual therapy. Thank you for this timely question, sister. Let's pray for everyone engaged in therapy over the phone or internet right now and for all those therapists who are trying to help them despite the clunky nature of technology. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. I'll speak to this personally first. This can be a hard transition. While I'm not a therapist who hugs anyone, I do think there's a huge benefit to meeting in person. There's so much more emotion that can be sensed and care that you can communicate when you're sitting one-on-one together. So this pandemic has created a huge difficulty in the mental health world, in my opinion. I run a perinatal bereavement program for those individuals who have experienced a miscarriage, pregnancy loss, stillbirth, or infant death, and it's entirely over-the-phone, one-on-one therapy, and I've noticed that it can be difficult difficult to share those deep and hard emotions over the phone, at least at first. It's really common for people to downplay their difficulties and just say they're doing fine. And without being in the room with them, it's a lot harder for me to detect something going on that I could call out uh, if we were in the room together in person. So I think there's a lot that gets lost. As as far as research goes, it's pretty new. But in one small study, 93% of telepsychiatry patients said that they felt they could present the same information virtually as they could in person. 96% were satisfied with their sessions and 85% were comfortable in their ability to talk. However, they did report feeling slightly less supported and encouraged during online therapy compared to in-person therapy. So hang in there. We'll be praying for you and get back to in-person treatment whenever it's safe, according to the public health experts. Terry wraps us up, I'm bipolar, and have prayed to St. Dimna often, but when I'm going through a bad depression, I forget to turn to prayer. What should I do, and what exactly do we know about this wonderful saint? 
Please join me in praying for Terry and everyone living with bipolar disorder and for all of us who find ourselves struggling with symptoms and not feeling like we can pray. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. I'm so glad you reached out, Terry, and please know that I will be praying for you. And if I know our listeners, you just got added to a whole bunch of prayer lists. I've also found myself in deep, dark depressions and have had no motivation or impulse to pray. It's actually why I always make a comment about that exact feeling at the end of each episode. The, uh, if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry, I'll be praying for you and so will St. Dymphna part. Most recently when this happened, I reached out on social media and asked others to pray for me. And believe it or not, I saw this have a dramatic impact on my situation and my impulse to pray. Having people praying for me actually brought me closer to God and helped me feel his presence back in my heart in a profound way. So I can't say this enough ask others to pray for you. Now, about my girl, St. Dymphna, since you asked, what exactly do we know about this wonderful saint? Here I go. Dymphna was born in the 7th century Ireland, the daughter of a pagan man who reigned over a small kingdom called Oriel on the north side of the island and a Christian mother. Everything was going along smoothly until Dymphna's mother became sick and died. Dymphna was just 14 years old at the time and had recently taken a vow of chastity, dedicating her life to Christ thanks to her mother's witness to the faith. Dymphna and her father began to spiral into grief and bereavement, and it got to the point where her father's friends recommended he get remarried as a way to move forward. He agreed, but vowed only to marry someone who had the beauty of his deceased wife. His friends scoured the land nearby to find a woman of matching beauty, but came up empty, which led Dimna's father to fall deeper into grief and eventually madness that focused on his de- that focused his desires on Dimna herself. He was unceasing in his efforts to convince her to marry him, but she pushed back and eventually escaped with her spiritual director to Giel, Belgium. It was there that she gained the reputation of a compassion and kindness that would directly lead to her becoming the patron saint of those suffering from mental illness. An article from fellow Dymphna fan Anne Terrio in a September 2009 article appearing in Broadview shares what happened next. Maybe it was those complicated feelings that led Dymphna to do what she did next, use her considerable resources to build a hospice for the poor and the sick. According to some versions of her legend, this hospice particularly served those with mental or neurological illnesses. If this is true, Dimpna would have been centuries ahead of the rest of Europe. Most medieval hospices turned away people with mental illness, believing them to be contagious or possessed or both. But Dimpna seemed determined to help others who suffered the way her father did. Her compassion and charity would eventually be her undoing, however, as her father's friends eventually heard news of an Irish woman spending considerable wealth to help the less fortunate in Giel. Her father, ever deepening into his madness, tracked her down. We turn back to Anne Terrio's article. After finding her, Damon, Dimpna's father, had the priest executed in front of her, but even that didn't convince Dimpna to marry him, so Damon beheaded her with his own sword. It's hard to imagine a lonelier or more frightening death in a foreign land at the hands of her father at just 15 years old. Damon's soldiers, who probably teased and played with Dimpna when she was a little girl, looked on and did nothing. Maybe that was the worst part, or maybe it was all so awful that there was no single part that could be called the worst. 
Some traditions hold that mentally ill patients from her hospice also witnessed Dimpton's death, and they were immediately miraculously cured. As this story spread, Giel became a place of pilgrimage for the mad, anyone with mental illness, epilepsy, neurological disorders, and cognitive differences. Pilgrims flocked to Dimpton's burial site, and more cures were recorded. At some point, she began to be venerated as a local saint. Remember, we're praying for you, and so is St. Dimphna. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. We've even got a bonus episode up for you guys of St. Dimna's Playbook. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dimna.